1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Uh, that's, that's all we're looking at this morning is the first two verses of 1 Timothy chapter 6. Um, as you guys turn there, I uh, want to encourage you, especially if you are a man, we have a men's retreat happening the last weekend in April. We shared about it a month or so ago. Uh, we have 16 brothers here signed up from the Woods, uh, Royal Oak campus who are going, myself included. I'll be preaching Sunday morning uh, for the retreat, so love for you to join us. We'll have some guys carpooling up together, um, and it's a great chance to build relationships, help somebody get connected if you have a friend who's kind of on the fringes. Um, it's just a great concentrated time of having a blast, worshiping together, hearing God's word. Um, there's like 20 more spots for sign up. There's also several scholarships. If uh, money's an issue, uh, please reach out to us, let us know. But I'm sure if you Google Woodside Bible Church Men's Retreat, you'll find the link. Um, but it's a, it's a beautiful camp, too. Um, it is, as I tell our student ministry when they go up, it's not camping. It's like a bougie resort <laughs> compared to anything that is truly camping. Um, uh, Timberwolf Lake uh, Camp is the name of it. It's right outside of Cadillac, several hours away. It's, it's an awesome experience. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Um, so you remember starting in chapter 5, um, the apostle starts using this word honor, um, and he's using it in the context of different relationships in the church. He says in chapter 5, verse 1, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So he doesn't actually use the word there, but he is, the idea is there for sure. You know, don't rebuke an older brother, but honor him as a father. Encourage younger men encourage younger sisters. Um, and then he does use the word honor in chapter 5, verse 3. He says, honor widows who are truly widows. And then in chapter 5, verse 17, he says, let elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. So again, this idea of honoring one another in relationship within the church. In chapter 6, when he turns the corner into this chapter, he continues to use this word and continues to have this theme of relationships and honoring one another, except this time it's also in the context of our jobs, honoring our employers, whether they be a Christian or not. Um, this is God's call on our lives to honor our employers. Again, only two verses, uh, so he's not spending a ton of time fleshing out the application of the gospel in the workplace, um, and quite honestly, uh, we as a church tradition don't spend a lot of time talking about how our faith relates to our work, um, which is really peculiar because we spend so much time at work. Um, but our tradition, which is, you know, broadly speaking, evangelicalism, we tend to hyper-spiritualize the faith. And so secular things like your job, we don't talk about a whole lot and really uh, intentionally, thoughtfully think, how can we show up in a way that honors the Lord in our workplace. Um, and we're only looking at two verses today, so not a lot there either. So I want to recommend for you guys a couple of resources if you want to look at this further. Um, the first one is a book called The Gospel at Work, How Working for King Jesus Gives Purpose and Meaning to Our Jobs. The Gospel at Work. It's by uh, two brothers, Sebastian Traeger and Greg Gilbert authored this book. It's pretty small, concise, but also loaded with biblical teaching and godly wisdom on how the gospel applies to our workplaces. Another one, one of my favorite authors, and this one's a little more dense, it's called Every Good Endeavor, 
uh, connecting your work to God's work. That's by a pastor missionary named Tim Keller, um, Every Good Endeavor. Um, it's much more comprehensive and, and spends a lot more time looking at things more deeply. You can tell it's a little bigger book, but both of these are really helpful for helping us uh, follow Jesus into the workplace and apply the gospel to what God has called us to in our jobs. So I encourage you to check those out. But today, uh, not a small book, not a big book, only two verses. Um, see what God has for us. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Question authority. At one point in time, apparently, this was a pretty popular bumper sticker. Question authority. And the slogan originates from the 1960s and the teaching of psychologist and author Timothy Leary. And Leary's teaching was, in many ways, representative of the spirit of the 1960s, a decade wherein revolution and protest and questioning authority happened on a large scale. Religious authorities, political authorities, parental authorities, occupational authorities, military authorities, artistic authorities, police authorities, educational authority, all authority, question it. And this spirit of rebellion, this spirit of pushback led to societal disturbances and cultural transformations that are well known, and many of them still with us today. And one of the primary expressions of this questioning spirit, my favorite expression of this questioning spirit was rock and roll music. So you think of Pink Floyd's song, The Wall. Its lyrics famously calling into question school authorities. We don't need no education. We don't need no Thought control, no dark sarcasm in the classroom. Sing it if you know it. Hey, teacher, leave those kids alone. All right, we just identified every pagan in the room. So point at them. I wonder if I quoted a hymn like that. You guys could follow along. I'm just kidding. So the lyrics protest that education is thought control. You know, you're just trying to control me with your educational authority. Therefore, leave those kids alone, teacher. One more example from a more recent artist, John Mayer. This song is called, Who Says? And the lyrics go like this. Who says I can't get stoned? Turn off the lights and my telephone. Me in my house alone. Who says I can't get stoned? Who says? Who says I can't smoke dope? Who says I can't put whatever drug I want to in my body? So especially since the 1960s, we live in what some have called 
an anti-authoritarian age. But in some ways, this may be an exaggeration because as we look further back in human history, as we look at scripture, humans have always struggled with authority and submitting to it. You can even see this in the earliest chapters of the Bible when Adam and Eve fell into sin. You remember God, their creator, commanded them not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but they eventually decide, hey, we're going to forge our own path. We're going to do things our own way. And we're told that they wanted to be like God. They didn't want to submit to God. They wanted to take his place and be their own authority. So this resistance and struggle with authority has always been with us, and it goes all the way back in our history, way before the 1960s. And likewise, what we see in today's passage is that some of the earliest Christians struggled with occupational authority. They struggled with submitting to their employers. And in many ways, it would make sense that they would struggle like this. We can have sympathy with them, I think, because oftentimes these bond servants, as Paul calls them here, oftentimes these bond servants were stuck in their employment situation because of debt they owed to their masters. So they would sell themselves essentially into slavery in order to pay off their debt. Well, many of these servants would then hear and believe the gospel of Jesus, the gospel that announces freedom for the captive, the gospel that announces good news for the poor. So, for example, in John chapter 8, Jesus says that whoever abides in my word will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's a beautiful part of the gospel. Another one in Galatians chapter 3, the apostle Paul says that many of society's ranking systems are all leveled out by the gospel. He says that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek. In Christ there is neither slave nor free. In Christ there is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ. And all this gospel truth is a remarkably liberating message for someone who is poor, for someone who is a bondservant or a slave. That's why so many on the margins of society were drawn to Jesus because of this message of freedom and equality in Christ. So you can see how these early Christians would then respond, hey, I'm free in Christ. Who is the emperor to tell me what to do? Who are my parents to tell me what to do? Who is my employer to tell me what to do? So you can see how even though they've become Christians and submitted their lives to Jesus, this struggle with authority has kind of started all over again. And a big part of the apostles' initial effort to disciple the first generations of Christians was to teach them that, yes, we are under the higher heavenly authority of Jesus, but we still have lower earthly authorities as well. Yes, we are citizens of heaven through Jesus, but we are still citizens of Michigan and got to submit to our governor. Yes, we are members of God's family through faith in Jesus, but we are still members of our biological family and we honor our parents. And as it relates to the workplace, yes, we are laborers for God. We are co-workers in the gospel, but we are still laborers for GM or Costco, or Royal Oak School System, or whoever you work for. So listen to the way Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 through 23. 
He's writing to the church in a city called Colossae, and he says to them, bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Obey them not by way of eye service, obey them not as people pleasers, but obey them with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So Paul says we don't disobey earthly masters because of our freedom in Christ, just the opposite. We obey them and work heartily for them because of our relationship with Christ. Paul says, obey your earthly masters because you fear the Lord. And when we look at his instruction on this same topic in 1 Timothy, he's going to share two results from faithfully honoring our employers. First, he says that we uphold the gospel through our faithful service to our earthly employer. We uphold the gospel through faithfully honoring our employers. So look again at verse 1. Paul writes to the church, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. So we have to acknowledge here that those Paul is speaking to are not in exactly the same situation as you and I have to our employers. So first, you notice he refers to them as bondservants. And this is a kind of employment that is not necessarily voluntary. So by contrast, my employment to you guys, my employment to Woodside Bible Church is voluntary. In other words, I could resign whenever I want. Of course, I would never do that. I love my job. But the situation was different for the bondservants that Paul is addressing. In the Roman Empire at the time, there was this system of servitude, you may even call it a system of slavery that these bondservants or slaves were a part of, and it was a huge part of Roman society. Up to a third of the empire's citizens were bondservants or slaves. Now, this system of slavery was not exactly the same as the system of slavery that existed in this country. Our system of slavery was race-based, It was kidnapping generated, and it existed here for three centuries or so. The system of slavery that existed in the ancient world wasn't exactly the same. Nevertheless, it was still largely an unjust and dehumanizing economic system. Nevertheless, despite it being dehumanizing, despite it being unjust, the apostle still calls these Christians who are bondservants, who are under the yoke of servitude, he still calls them to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. So think about this. If these early Christians, if they were called to honor their employers, who oftentimes they were forced to be employed by, how much more should we honor our employers that we freely choose to be employed by? My point is that on the whole, by God's grace, we have a lot better economic system and a lot more occupational choices than many of our ancient brothers and sisters in the faith, and yet they were still called to honor their employers. And so how much more should we? And I want you to notice that he doesn't use the S word here. He doesn't call for us to merely submit to our earthly employer, difficult as that can be. 
offensive as that can be at times when we are commanded to submit. But by directing us to honor our employers, this is potentially an even more difficult command. Because I can submit to someone and not honor them, right? I can submit to someone and hate that someone. I can submit to them and completely disrespect and disparage them the whole time that I'm submitting. So the apostle here actually has a deeper challenge. What I mean is that to honor someone is a matter of our heart's posture toward them. Honoring someone is not a matter of simply obeying them, but our attitude, our spirit towards them. It's a spirit of deference. It's a spirit of humility. It's a mindset approaching our workplace superiors, honoring the fact that they are indeed our superiors. Furthermore, think about the way he phrases this. Paul says, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard or consider their own masters as worthy of all honor. So he says, regard them as worthy of honor. Or as other translations have it, consider them as worthy of all honor. The insinuation being that their masters may not, in fact, be worthy of honor. They may be dishonorable bosses. Nevertheless, regard them as such. Consider them worthy of all honor. Several years ago, 2010, I started seminary graduate studies in ministry and theology, and to do so, I quit my profession in healthcare, but I picked up a part-time job at a fast food restaurant, Chick-fil-A. And you know, this is supposed to be the Christian restaurant. This is supposed to be the Christian chicken, right? And it was the case that a lot of my coworkers were believers, but we had one boss or manager, I don't know what his title was, but man, he got under my skin. He was such a jerk. His face was like stuck in the I'm angry facial expression, always in a bad mood, got frustrated over dumb stuff, treated us ungratefully. And the store had these dumb rules, like employees couldn't have facial hair at work, like even a little stubble. You had to be completely clean shaven, And sure enough, I show up for work one day and he hands me a Norelco electric shaver. Like, you got to shave before you can clock in. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. I mean, I know that we don't know exactly what Jesus looked like, but by every account, Jesus had a beard. So even he couldn't work at Chick-fil-A, Christian chicken, my foot. (laughs) So needless to say, I started looking for employment elsewhere after a few months. But anyway, we all have a story, right? I'm sure that many of you have stories of bosses way more awful than the one I share about. Bosses who are not necessarily worthy of all honor, but that's not the point. The apostle doesn't say honor them if they're honorable. He says regard them with honor regardless of whether or not they're worthy of it. And here's why. Look at what he says in verse 1. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. You see, that's, what it, that's what's at stake. That's what's at stake when it comes to how we relate to our employers, the name of God and the teaching of the gospel. If we dishonor our employers, the name of God and the teaching of the gospel will be dishonored. 
If we dishonor our employers, if we grumble and complain constantly, if we are quarrelsome and rude, if we are unfaithful in following through on our duties, it's not just our own resume that we are sullying, it's God's name. It's the teaching of God's word that we bring disrepute upon. So this elevates our actions and attitudes in the worst place. It matters what kind of employees we are. Not just because we may get fired if we're bad employees, but because it discredits the gospel. At the same time, just the opposite is true. If we honor our employees, our employers, if we compliment and encourage regularly, if we're peaceable and polite, if we're faithful and following through on our duties, then we validate the gospel and we bring honor to God's name. So this dignifies our work. Church, your work bears witness to your God. The quality and goodness of your work and the way you carry it out, it speaks to the goodness and truth of our God. Listen to how Paul puts it in Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Paul writes to Titus and says to the church, Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So he's saying dishonorable behavior towards our employer can cause God's name to be reviled, but honorable, godly behavior towards our employer does just the opposite. It adorns, it beautifies the teaching of God's word in the gospel. So we've got to ask ourselves, Christian, what does your actions and attitudes in the workplace say about God? Are your actions in accordance with the duties of your job, fulfilling your responsibilities? Or are you cutting corners, doing the least acceptable amount, working hard when the boss is looking and slacking when he's not? And your attitude, is your attitude one of humility and gratitude and a servant's heart? Or are you harboring bitterness towards your superiors, hanging on to anger or frustration at them? Now hear me, I know this is not always easy. Workplace situations for us and certainly for these bond servants in the ancient world, it can be complicated, messy, and oftentimes unfair. But church, let's show honor to our superiors and so uphold the gospel. Let's adorn, let's beautify, let's make attractive the teaching of Jesus by the way we, his followers, show up at work. So two results from faithfully honoring our employers. First, towards non-Christians, we uphold the gospel. And secondly, towards Christians, we bless our spiritual family. When we honor our Christian employers, we bless spiritual families. So it seems that in verse 1, it's perhaps more related to non-Christian employers because there was the possibility of God's name being reviled by our employers if we fail to honor them. But verse 2 certainly relates to the situation if we have a Christian employer. Paul writes, Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful. So this is essentially the same command 
as before. Verse 1, regard your masters as worthy of all honor. Verse 2, those who have believing masters, don't be dishonoring, don't be disrespectful. Essentially the same command. However, in verse 2, he gives a different reason for the command. Verse 1, the reason for command was upholding God's name and the reputation of the gospel. But in verse 2, he says, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. So you remember several weeks ago, we talked about 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Those two verses are central to the entire letter of 1 Timothy. And in those verses, Paul refers to the church as the household of God. And he says that he's writing to Timothy, to the church in Ephesus, so that they would know how to behave in the household of God. Well, here in chapter 6, verse 2, Paul is viewing the specific situation between Christian employers and Christian employees. He's viewing that situation through the lens of this truth, that we are the household of God. You see, the claim that we are the household of God, that we are the family of God, that's not just some nice-sounding sloganeering by the apostle. No, this is a truth claim that he is calling us to apply to real life, to concrete situations. Again, in this case, he says to Christians who are employed by a Christian, he says, honor your Christian employer on the grounds that he is Your brother, in other words, would you dishonor your brother like that? Would you disrespect a member of your own family like that? Well, then don't treat your Christian boss like that because he is a member of your family. Let's think back to my experience with the Christian chicken boss, the Chick-fil-A manager, who forced me to shave with this used junkie shaver before I could start my shift. You know, to think back on it, I could have probably called the health department on him. But I have two older brothers. I have two older brothers in my nuclear family, Billy and Jonathan. And what Paul is saying is, CT, when your Christian boss asks you to do something that you don't want to do, almost imagine that it's Billy or Jonathan asking you to do it. Because that Christian chicken boss in Christ, he is as much your brother as Billy or Jonathan. And I do have to admit that if it was Billy or Jonathan asking me to shave, I would have viewed the situation differently. I probably would have been more willing to help them out, do what they want as my brother, as my boss, as a member of my family. Well, Paul is saying exactly. And the Christian chicken guy is your brother also. He is a member of your family in Christ. So give him the same kind of respect that you would Billy or Jonathan. The apostle continues in verse two, the second half of the verse. He says, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Paul says, not only should we honor our believing bosses because they are our brothers, but we should serve them all the better since those who are benefiting from our service are a fellow believer in Jesus. They're a fellow beloved of God brother. So think about this. A significant portion of businesses in our country are what we call family businesses, right? These are businesses that are family owned and family operated. The husband and wife own the business, 
The kids grow up and run the business. A lot of companies operate this way because it's a way to not only make a living, but a way to more directly benefit your family through the business that you're growing, as opposed to working for a large company that's owned by nameless, faceless shareholders. Well, again, Paul is saying, if you work for a family, if you work for a fellow believer, you are directly benefiting your family, as in a family business. Because those who benefit from your good service, they too are believers and beloved. So work all the harder, serve all the better. So I have to ask you, are you viewing your relationships at church and the interactions that happen here through the lens of family? Are you viewing your relationships at church and the interactions that happen here through the lens of family? Because that's what the apostle's doing here. The apostle views this dynamic and the relational tension between Christian employees with their Christian employers, he views that dynamic through the lens of family. If he is in Christ, your boss is your brother or sister. So if you have a Christian boss, imagine him as one of the members of your family because he is one of the members of your family. And so how does that change your attitude? How does that change your actions? Because in Christ, we are spiritual family. In Christ, we are the household of God. Let's view one another that way. Let's treat one another that way. Let me apply this to a completely different situation in the life of our church, but one that many of us have experienced in the last 48 hours. Um, Many of us here this morning um, and many of us across our faith family lost power starting Friday night. And uh, thankfully, this did not happen to me and my wife. But I can tell you that if it had, we would have, without second thought, packed up our car, gotten all the kids ready to go, and gone straight to my in-laws, who live in Beverly Hills, and uh, wouldn't even have knocked, would have walked right in, started to make ourselves comfortable. I, for sure, as I always do when I go there, checked out the fridge, checked out the pantry, and my in-laws wouldn't have said anything, at least to my kids and my wife. They wouldn't have said anything because they view us as family. They treat us like family because that's how we are. That's who we are. And so it was just this automatic response that we have had in different situations. Thankfully, we didn't this weekend. But there's an open door There's open hands, there's open hearts, there's open pantries for us to Meg's family because they are our family. And gratefully, I heard stories from some of you here who were able to experience that in the context of this faith family. Because some of you don't have nuclear family in Oakland County, but you do have spiritual family here at this church. And so there was an automatic invite. There was an understanding that yes, We're brothers and sisters. Yes, we view one another like that. So of course, come over. So of course, I'll come help you. Because you see, the exact same thing is happening that Paul's calling for here. We're viewing one another through the lens of family. On the grounds that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, we're treating one another 
accordingly. That's what's happening here in the ancient church. And that's what's happening here by God's grace in the contemporary church that is Woodside Royal Oak. But we constantly need to be called to this. We constantly need to hear the truth and have it affirmed in our hearts that yes, we are God's children and that means that we are a part of God's house with our brothers and sisters. Because the truth is that the spirit of 1960s goes all the way back to the original 60s, the 60s AD, when Paul wrote 1 Timothy. The spirit of the 1960s goes even further back, all the way to the garden. Honoring authority, submitting to authority is not always easy. Sometimes it's our sinful pride that gets in the way. Sometimes it's the authority that we're supposed to be submitting to that is not worthy of honor because of a bad boss or an unfair situation. There are all sorts of obstacles to submitting as we should. But being citizens of heaven, church, it doesn't mean that we have no earthly ties. It doesn't mean that we have no earthly responsibility. In fact, we are called as followers of Jesus to be exemplary earthlings. As citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we are called to be exemplary citizens of earth by submitting to authorities, by respecting our parents, and yes, by honoring our employers. When we do so, we uphold the gospel and we preserve God's reputation amongst outsiders. Because you see, our honorable work And our submissive spirit, it exemplifies and it bears witness to the humility of Christ. Jesus is the most worthy, honorable, respectable person ever. And yet, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus says that he came into the world not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came not to be greatest of all, but to be servant of all. And so church, let's bear witness to Jesus through our faithful work and through our humble attitude as we relate with our superiors and our co-laborers. I pray it would be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.